You know when you get the news that um, somebody that you care about is um, hurting or sick and maybe in a medium fashion and you feel it. Do you feel it? I feel it. Some of you can cry. Some of you don't feel it. You compartmentalize and that's how you do life. But some of us feel it immediately. Um, and for me, it's about an hour. If it's that kind of situation, somebody's a little bit sick um, and I, there's nothing I can do, right? 99% of the time, there's nothing for us to do as neighbors. Uh, we pray, that matters, but there's nothing for us to go and do with our hands or with our mind or our mouth. And so we feel anxious, right? Uh, when I'm criticized, feel a certain kind of anxiety. There are uh, stories from my past that still can put that lump in my chest, you know? You know what I'm talking about? And when Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount towards anxiety, that's not what he's talking about. I know that because um, he's so comforting to those who are hurting. I know that because I know the word for anxiety here is Miriam Nao, which is to be over-concerned about small things. I know that because um, of how he treated his friends and his enemies. And how he spoke about what to do with our anxieties. Later in the New Testament, he'll say that we're to cast them on him. And yet, there's this long teaching from the Sermon on the Mount about anxiety. And I want to say a couple things before I read it. No, I don't. I changed my mind. If you have your Bible, I'm in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. If you do not have a Bible, you can use your phone. If you're one of those people that doesn't have a phone with a Bible on it, you can get a Bible in the back and you can keep it. That would be fine. If you know this text or just want to listen along, that's fine. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So that door every once in a while blows open. How cool would it have been if it had blown open right then and a bird had flown in? I'm so glad it didn't happen, though, because then what would we do? <laughs> Picking up in verse 27. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So many things about this text. You have lunch plans? I went a little over in the 9 o'clock service. Texts like this are both why Jesus is often considered a good teacher. I mean, this is tweetable stuff here. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. 
Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. A friend of mine says, don't borrow from tomorrow's concern. But a text like this has at its heart something that's not so good teachery. It's that God is a good father. And that we receive that fatherly care through Jesus. I'll unpack that a little bit in a minute. And yet, it still works. Isn't that amazing? Just in and of itself. You're not a follower of Jesus. You're skeptical or thoughtful. Or you just don't actually care that much. Just in and of itself. Isn't it interesting that 2,000 years ago, a carpenter spoke about our daily anxieties in a way that is still really compelling? I think that's really interesting. We have to talk about something before we can unpack this text. Um, what is this anxiousness? The word is over-concern. And especially contextually with the mundane things of life. So an over-concern about food and clothing and um, the mundane details of life. There was actually a kind of philosophy in ancient Greece that this word tied into. There were minute philosophers. It wasn't a very big form of philosophy, but the word was used that way to describe people that thought they could have every little thing figured out perfectly. This is not when we feel anxious because our friend is sick. That's not what this is about. If you have had a medical test and you don't know the result, this is not speaking to that. If you are concerned because you are underemployed or unemployed, this is not speaking to that. There would be a different Greek word, probably the one that we think of as fear. Jesus would speak about it more uh, differently than he does. Here's how I know something that's very important for me to say. Here's how I know that Jesus did not consider anxiety sin. Because he didn't say it. You heard a pastor say that. I think when pastors say anxiety or doubt is a sin, what they're, what they're doing is pressing us because the with God life frees us from anxiety and doubt into a flourishing life. And that's true. But they push and say that it's a sin and I believe they're wrong. And here's why. If your eye causes you to... So you guys know your Bible. Great. What do you do? You pluck it out. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. If your hand causes you to cut it off. When Jesus wants to describe something as sin, he does. When the Apostle Paul says, don't be anxious, but in everything by prayer and supplication, like that's great. And some people use that text to say it's a sin. The same book has a long list of sins. If Paul wanted to list it as a sin, he would have. Love incarnate tells you and me not to be over-anxious about the details of life because he is love incarnate and he longs for us to flourish as human beings through not just believing he is who he says he is, but through trusting him and then flourishing Specifically flourishing by not over-worrying about the mundane details of life. So I want to be really clear about something. Some of you have heard me preach on this before because you were here when I covered some of those texts from the Apostle Paul. Is worry a sin? No. 
No. There are enough sins for us to worry about avoiding. We don't need to add to it. Okay, good. Those of you who want to email me later, go for it. Jesus said not to overworry about anything. He's kind of put pressing, he's using some examples and he's pressing to help us understand that any of the things that we are thinking about that day, there's a point in which we have to be concerned about them and we ought not be over-concerned about them, right? I'm saying it somewhat vaguely, but I think you know. I think if you were watching me pick out my clothes for Sunday morning, I'm fully dressed in this scenario, and I stand in front of my closet, there's a certain period of time where you would think he's over-concerned about what he's going to wear to church today. I wear a tie sometimes. Some of you don't know that because you don't like to go to the first service, which is okay. Um, if I just grab a tie, I might accidentally grab the Picasso tie that Lynn Schoenhart gave me as a joke. And if someone saw it, they'd be like, whoa. But if I stood in front of my closet for 10 minutes looking at the 11 ties that I have, you would think that was over-concerned about that. And you think, that why, why does this have to do with a sermon? What does this have to do with real life? What does this have to do with the gospel of Jesus? The gospel of Jesus frees us into a relationship with God eternally and today. And today, that means being freed into flourishing and not over-worrying about food, drink, clothing. This is not about hungry people. Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount about those that are in need and how followers of Jesus are supposed to respond to that. This is not directed at men and women that don't know where their next meal is going to come from. Oh, just don't worry about it. God will take care of it. That's not what he's saying. He's speaking to his followers about daily life. In many ways, this is a reinforcing of the teaching in Ecclesiastes and sort of a... Um, sort of a mirror to it. The the book of Ecclesiastes teaches that striving after any of the earthly pleasures as 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 a, a deep and saving good is going to frustrate us if we expect food to really deliver and make us or give us eternal peace. That's going to frustrate us. But food is still a good gift. Same thing with work and drink and rest according to the book of Ecclesiastes. There's an interesting way that we become over-concerned about mundane details of our life. And it's not simply looking in our closets too long. It's a, it's, a, it's a mindset that I don't think I can explain perfectly. So I'm going to read a really long quote from a really interesting book that I think many of you have read. It's called The Screwtape Letters. Um, It's a book by uh, an English writer named C.S. Lewis. It's a fictional account of an older demon writing to a younger demon, and he's going to reference another demon in the middle of it. And he talks about the gluttony of delicacy. And you might get a little lost in the language here, but if you can stay with me, I think you'll notice in us something that blocks our joy. My dear Wormwood... Younger demon. The contemptuous way in which you spoke of gluttony as a means of catching souls in your last letter only shows your ignorance. One of the great achievements of the last hundred years has been to deaden the human conscience on that subject. 
so that by now you will hardly find a sermon preached or a conscience troubled by it in the whole length and breadth of Europe. This has largely been affected by concentrating all our efforts on the gluttony of delicacy, not gluttony of excess. Your patient's mother, as I learned from the dossier, and you might have learned from Glubos, that's another demon, I don't know if these are their names, is a good example. She would be astonished one day, I hope, to learn that her whole life is enslaved to this kind of sensuality, which is quite concealed from her by the fact that the quantities involved are very small. This is you and me thinking all I want is a correct cup of coffee or tea or burger or whatever. Listen. But what do quantities matter provided we can use a human belly and palate to produce querulousness, impatience, uncharitableness, and self-concern? Glubos has this old woman well in hand. She is a positive terror to hostesses and servants. She's always turning from what has been offered her to say with a demure little sigh and smile, Oh, please, please, all I want is a cup of tea, but not too weak, and the teeniest, weeniest bit of really crisp toast. You see, because she, what she wants is smaller and less costly than what has been set before her, she never recognizes as gluttony her determination to get what she wants, however troublesome it may be to others. At the very moment of indulging her appetite, she believes she's practicing temperance. In a crowded restaurant, she gives a little scream at the plate, which some overworked waitress has set before her and says, Oh, that's far, far too much. Take it away and bring me about a quarter of it. If challenged, she would say she was doing this to avoid waste. In reality, she does it because the particular shade of delicacy to which we have enslaved her is offended by the sight of more food than she happens to want. I saw this happen yesterday as I was getting meat at Stop and Shop. I don't know what happened. Maybe the person working was mean before I got there, but he was being accosted by a customer who really wanted to come back and cut the meat specifically. And whatever happened before I got up there, the anger in this woman is what Jesus is speaking to, the beauty of the gospel, freeing us from. C.S. Lewis will later point out in this chapter, for those of us who experience the tea and we cannot get the cup of tea, that's all we want. Listen, the main thing that's different about the tea is not the tea. It's us. We used to be a lot easier to please. I know that seems maybe a little harsh, but I believe it to be true. And Jesus spent a long time talking about in the Sermon on the Mount not being enslaved to over-concern about these little things. So he said not to over-worry about anything. I think that the long and the short of this maybe is that we do so much better in traffic or in lines at the grocery store or wherever. Not because we don't need the food, not because we don't have particular tastes, but we're not over-worrying about them because we remember that we have a good Father in heaven. One of my very favorite quotes Peter DeVries is that the great recovery of the gospel is the everyday coffee in the morning and whiskey in the evening without fear what fear does is it mixes in with our idols and creates this crazy idol that you don't think is destructive and I don't either 
All I want is a dark roast, you know, in a ceramic mug. Hot, but not too hot. Not burnt, but caffeinated. Whatever. Sorry to the baristas in the room. I'm sure I said that poorly. How then do we not over worry about the mundane things of life? I love this so beautiful. By looking at flowers and birds. I just love this teaching. It's so profound in its simplicity and in the point of it. In, the, in our other sanctuary, there's an orchid right in front of the uh, altar. And I didn't know it was an orchid. I had to ask, which was very embarrassing to a lot of my friends who didn't know that I don't know what an orchid is. Jesus might have been looking at an anemone, a gladiolus, a poppy, a Madonna lily, or a whole host of flowers when he said this. We're not actually sure. But I want you to know I did my research. His encouragement is that we look at flowers and birds. And when we look at flowers and birds, we remember that he's a good father in heaven. Have you ever wondered why it's important to locate God? Jesus encourages it here and he encourages it in uh, the Lord's Prayer. Like, why does it matter where God is? Well, heaven is a separate plane of existence. Therefore, it's a gentle, kind reminder... God knows your yesterday and your today and your tomorrow. And in our over-anxiety, our over-concern for the regular things of life, what we forget is who He is, good Father, where He is, in heaven, understanding everything that's happened to you and all the challenges of that day. And all the challenges of the future that are mysterious and frightening. So we look at the birds or the flowers and we remember that he is a good father in heaven. This particular teaching became a lot stronger for Matthew in chapter 8. He writes this, And when he got into the boat, the disciples followed him. That's my connection point. So the the whole Sermon on the Mount is a description and series of commands and teachings to those who are following Jesus. In chapter 8, And when he got into the the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. That word great storm is seismos, so it might have been like an earthquake. Like seismic activity, right? And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? O you of little faith. And listen, that sounds like a pushback to us. That's love incarnate, granting a merciful invitation to greater faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. Sally Lloyd-Jones says that they remember his voice from creation, which is why they obey him. Then he arose, then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? It is not just our anxiety that Jesus speaks to, it's our fear. But there's also a description. So that's in Matthew because that happened to Matthew. But later, as he's reflecting on it, he realized there's encouragement there. That in following Christ, 
and as being a human, but specifically in following Christ, our boats will get rocked. And he speaks not only to our over-concern about the small things of life, but he speaks to our deepest fears and offers himself. Back to Matthew 6, though, I don't want us to miss this beautiful command to look at the flowers and the birds. This is a painting that I have a reproduction of in my office. That's Makoto Fujimura's Consider the Lilies. He's a Japanese-American author and artist who I, I highly commend his works. He's a beautiful painter and writer. And you know, when the weather's like this, I can't just look out a window and find a bird or a flower anytime I want. So I spin around in my chair and look at this. Consider the lilies, not just for their own beauty. Remember that our Father is in heaven and He cares for us. Jesus encouraged us not to overworry about anything by looking at flowers and birds and by fully trusting Him. The heart of this teaching is both the Father heart of God and living as a follower of Christ, which means choosing the kingdom. There at the end of the passage, he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Throughout um, the Sermon on the Mount, we are going to be uncomfortable. Jesus is going to speak about lust and money and anger and divorce, and we're going to be uncomfortable because following him is not easy. But his teaching is easy. His teaching is, trust me. Believe I am who I said I am. Learn to trust me and then you will flourish as a human being. Specifically here by learning not to be over-concerned with the daily actual concerns of life. The question is distilled this way. It's a very old question. Do you believe that God knows what's best for you? And it's a question that affects how we order tea, how we operate at the butcher counter, the decisions we make with our hands, with our sexuality, with our money, with our words. Do we believe that God knows what's best for us? When we do, we're invited into a relationship that offers peace and rest today and eternally. It does not take away the circumstances and concerns of our lives, but it does give us peace amidst those circumstances and concerns. It frees us into a life where we do not over-worry. Later in the book of Matthew, Matthew records that at that time, Jesus declared, I'm in chapter 11, verses 25 through 30, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father except the, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, which is a term that applied to teaching at the time. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The offer of Jesus is rest for our souls. Because of the Father heart of God, because of the work of Christ that frees us into relationship with Him, and because of the Holy Spirit that we have if we're a follower of Christ. And that Holy Spirit will never leave us or forsake us. Good news is that God loves you because He is Him and you are you. We're still a mess, far more so than we probably admit. We need the work of Christ to restore us to the Father, and we have it. The Holy Spirit pursues us and draws us into His kingdom, which means you have a role in God's kingdom and story. And so do I. And then we are invited to flourish as a human being. To learn not to be over-concerned about the little things of life, and therefore enjoy them. And receive the deep peace in our hearts that comes with being known by God. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for your words. that you free us from a life of over-concern about the many stresses, big and small. Lord, many men and women in here are in a place of mystery and confusion because of actual circumstances. Give them a sense of your presence. Many of us over-worry about little things as a diversion. Free us from that into the joy of the with-God life, free from all idols. And Father, for those who are considering your gospel, would it be clear to them that you free them into a flourishing life? For those of us that are trusting you, Lord, help us to trust you in a deeper fashion. Amen.